So when I was a kid, um, I used to watch a lot of Blue's Clues. Do we have any Blue's Clues fans in here? Sweet. Um, you raised your hand way too quickly, by the way. Um, well, I loved that show. If you don't know what it is, it's a kid's show. Um, and I'm showing my age by telling you this, but that's, that's okay. Uh, but basically, Blue's Clues was a show about a dog named Blue who sets out clues. It's very complicated. Um, and there was a guy, one of the guys, the, the dude in the show, his name was Steve. And I was a purist, by the way. I only watched the Steve version of Blue's Clues. If you know, you know, right? Uh, but Steve was a college-aged guy with no job and apparently no real direction <laughs> in life uh, who just searches around the house all day to figure out what his dog wants. It's a fun show, and as a kid, I loved it. But as I got older, as all kids do, um, I stopped watching Blue's Clues, and I think I also started getting pretty pessimistic in life. Um, and one day, my niece was watching Blue's Clues at our house. This is when I was in about fifth or sixth grade, and I'm hanging out in the living room, and she's watching Blue's Clues, and then the theme song came on, the one they sing at the end of every episode. And she started singing along with it, and they sang the line, with, you, with me and you and my dog, Blue, we can do anything that we want to do. Thank you for singing along with me. Yep. Um, so, my, so I'm listening to this song, and they, she sings that line, and I said, that's not true. That's not true. And she turned and looked at me and said, yes, it is. <laughs> and it turned into a whole thing. And so she was ready to throw down. Her eyes were squinted. She was, I mean, she was staring me down. And so I was like, okay, we're getting into this. And I said, you really believe that you can do anything that you want to do? And she said, yes, I do. And so I naturally went on to point out all the flaws in that logic and in that show. I said, you can do anything you want to do. Grow two feet right now. Just grow two feet. And she's like, whatever. And then I went on to explain to her, okay, why can't the dog talk? Everything and everyone else in that show talks. The salt shaker, the kitchen table, the cat next door talks, but Blue can't talk. Why is that? Right? And so I said, if Blue can do anything he wants to do, then why doesn't Blue just talk? And she started crying. Um, because then I went on to gently explain to her the realities of life. I said, you can't do anything you want to do. You can only do things that are reasonably obtainable. And parents got involved. It was a whole, it was a whole thing. They still talk about it. Uh, at family gatherings, right? Now, why do I tell you that? Because I think sometimes when we begin to think about what it means to live by faith, we think that faith is similar to Blue's Clues, if we're being honest. That when it's me and God, that means that I can do whatever I want to do, right? That's not, how for, that, that's not how faith works. That the reality is when we have faith in an all-powerful, and all-loving God, if we really look to him and are fully dependent on him, that he begins a process in our lives, a process of transforming us, that the destination of our lives is not centered on us at all, but rather it's centered on him. And as we look at the story of Moses today, that's exactly what we're going to see, that God has a plan for him, and by faith, despite all of his limitations, all, all of his mistakes, Moses will surrender all of himself to the plan of God. And there's a very important word in the text that we read. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but it's the word endured in verse 27. Endured. It's very important. It says, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, but he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And something that we haven't really talked about yet with this series is that the book of Hebrews is written to a group of Jewish Christians, right? Jewish 
believers, and they were Jewish believers that were being persecuted pretty heavily. And many of them were considering giving up on their faith. That's why if you turn a page back and go to Hebrews 10, there's this very important section um, where he addresses their, their temptation to, to leave the faith. He says uh, in Hebrews 10, 32, he says, but recall the former days when you, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. And he says, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully, listen, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property <laughs> since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And he tells them this, and this is a good reminder for all of us. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For, and here's what he says, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. That is an astounding text. And he goes on to give us chapter 11, which highlights those who have endured through faith. So the writer of Hebrews is pleading with them to remember. Remember when you were enlightened. Remember when you endured suffering. Remember when you had compassion. Remember when you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property because you saw something better, right? And so he says, hey, just don't just throw it away. But you need endurance. You need to endure. And here's one of the great tensions, one of the fascinating tensions of the book of Hebrews. These Jewish believers had deep roots in Judaism, and they have had lived for so long in this system of works that Judaism teaches, that if you are moral enough, if you are good enough, if you observe the ceremonies and rituals, and if you keep the law, then you will be accepted by God. And then the gospel comes along, and the apostles begin to teach them that, no, salvation comes by faith. It comes by faith alone, and specifically, faith that is found in Jesus Christ, that it's a matter of grace, not works. That concept, though it's easy for us to understand, easy, but it's easier for us to understand in their system, in their culture, that was incredibly difficult, an incredibly difficult concept to understand, right? So the writer of Hebrews is pointing out in chapter 11, no, salvation has always been by faith. Even before Christ, salvation has always been by faith. And if you want to endure in this life, then that is only possible through faith in the Messiah. That is the only way you will find and endurance. And in every case found in Hebrews 11, the writer lays out how salvation has come through Abel, through Enoch, through Noah, through Jacob, Joshua, Isaac. I mean, all these people, not because of their works, but because they had faith. And when we get to Moses in Hebrews 11, a Jewish person would have thought, oh, what are you going to say about Moses? Because Moses was the poster boy of the law. He was the poster boy of the law. It's referred to as the law of Moses, right? He, he is as much as the law as someone could be. So for the scriptures to say, no, no. What brought salvation to Moses is not his works, but rather it's because he lived by faith. That would be a stunning thing for a Jewish person to read, that Moses lived by faith. And what was so hard for these Jewish believers is that, to believe is that living by faith does not mean that there are no rules. It doesn't mean that you have, that since you have grace, you can do whatever you want to do. It means that we have to rethink the purpose of works because of the coming 
death and resurrection of Christ. And specifically, the writer in Hebrews is demonstrating in Moses that even that the choices you make, the motivation for those choices is not to fit into a legalistic system where I will make these choices and follow these rules so that God will save me. But rather, these choices are a result of an enduring faith in God. So, go with me to verse 23. We'll start at the beginning again, and we'll work our way through. It says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. And by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, many of you know the story of um, Moses, but for those of us who don't, or we need a refresher, Moses was put in a basket to float away into the Nile. His mother did that because there was an edict put out by the Pharaoh that all the Hebrew male babies were to be killed. And so God protected Moses. His parents hid him for a short time, and then they put him in a basket, and he floats right up to who? Pharaoh's daughter. So go with me to Exodus chapter 2, and this is where we'll pick up uh, this part of Moses' narrative. Exodus 2, and we'll start in verse Five, it says, Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, uh, sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew children. Now, verse 4 tells us that Moses' sister was walking beside them. She was watching, right? And she makes a very sly entrance in verse Seven, she says, um, his sister, Moses' sister, said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, I know this isn't, we're not going to be able to talk about all of Moses' story, but come on, that is incredible, right? Pharaoh's daughter can't nurse him, and it just so happens that a Jewish woman offers to take the baby since she can't nurse him, and who does the baby go to? Moses' mom. I mean, come on, you can't make this stuff up. Verse 10, it says, When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, there are some who disagree on how old Moses was when he was brought back to Pharaoh's daughter. Some believe that it was at a young age, three to five Uh, Many believe, and this is kind of the camp that I land in, is that he was probably a little bit older, maybe like 8 to 12 years old. Okay, And here's why I believe that. This would have given him time and the ability to learn about his people, about the people of Israel, that he would have been taught by his mother and Abraham about, uh, uh, by his, not by Abraham, by his mother about Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph, all these men. He would have learned that the people were awaiting deliverance from Egypt. He would have been trained and taught about the covenant uh, between the people of Israel and God. And it says that he was brought back and he became the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now look at verse 11. It says, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Now Acts 7.23 tells us that there are 40 years between verses 10 and 11. 40 years. So this is a big time jump right here. And during that time, Moses is learning the way of the Egyptians. So the question is, that I think is helpful to understanding Hebrews 11, is what truth will take hold of Moses' heart? The truth that he learned from his family as a child, as a young 
Hebrew, right, that he learned about the covenant and the people of God, are what he learns from the Egyptians and their way of life. He would have learned Egyptian idolatry. He would have learned how to read and write. He would have learned hieroglyphics. He would have learned multiple language, like with the Canaanites, so that he could trade with them. So at this point, he's highly educated, and he is a leader. And we find Moses in a crucial decision. And it's no different than the decisions that we have to make every single day. Are we going to have faith in God? Are we going to live according to the expectations of the world that we live in? Now, what does Moses do? Hebrews tells us in verse 24, it says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That Hebrews says that Moses rejects the way of the Egyptians, that he had all the power, he had all the prestige, he had the honor of being a prince of Egypt, the power, the servants, the wealth, and Hebrews says he refused it all. Now, there are two things that are stunning about this, two things. First is that you have to understand the brainwashing in which Egyptians went about training their elite. I mean, it, it is incredible. One of the things that we know from ancient history is that Egyptians wanted their elite to see, like a prince, like a prince of Egypt, wanted their elite to see slaves and the working class as subhuman, subhuman. So if you were an Egyptian, I mean, you were special. And because you weren't one of them, then you were, in fact, more human and more important. They were trained, this is written down in documents, they trained their elite to think of slaves as if they were the living dead. And Moses would have sat under this teaching. They taught him that his people were subhuman. And if you go back to Exodus 1, it talks about the oppressive, how, just how oppressive the Egyptians were to the Israelites, that there was violence, there was rape, there was slavery. And so Moses grew up not just hearing this, but seeing it play out in front of him. That's the second thing. The second thing is the temptation that we have to think, well, it's really not that big of a deal. I would have done the same thing, right? I, like, really try to put yourself in his shoes, in Moses' shoes, what would you do? I really tried to think through that this week, and I have an answer to how, what I think I would do. Um, I think I would say, you know, I think I could stay in my position of power and do some good. You know, change things from the inside here. I mean, I'm in Pharaoh's house. I've got some power. Why don't I just work for the Hebrews within the system? But really, where is the commendation of faith in that? You know? Moses, he chooses, he makes a choice. This isn't happening. My people are being oppressed. That's why it says in verse 25, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. I think in Moses we see incredible courage and something that I think is really interesting. Um, I think it's courage by compassion here. And this compassion that Moses has, I think it's come from his mother, his sister, and his stepmother. Now, why do I believe that? Pharaoh has commanded that all the Hebrew moms throw their babies into the Nile. And Moses' mom can't do it. She cannot do it. She puts him in a basket, and she doesn't know what's going to happen to him. She says, God will protect him. There is incredible faith in that. Moses' sister can't let him go. So she follows him along the Nile. And then Moses' stepmom, who is an Egyptian royalty, hears Moses crying, and she's moved to compassion. And she wraps this baby up. I mean, come on. God is weaving into Moses from these women 
an understanding of what it means to care and love. I think it's come from his mother, his sister, and his stepmother. And it's also interesting in Exodus 2.11, when it says he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens, in the Hebrew language, the original language, language, that's the idea of to see with emotion, to see something and have empathy for it, to understand to, to, that your heart is ripped out of you. Like it's the same verb um, that's used when Hagar looks at her son. We talked about Hagar a couple weeks ago, uh, briefly, when we talked about Sarah. But Hagar looks at her son, who she thinks is going to die, and it says she looked at him. And it's this idea that she looked at him with compassion, to look and be moved. And so Moses looks out, and he's filled with compassion. And in a moment, he rejects the palace, and he defends his people. He chooses to refuse everything. But here's the deal with this story that makes it so difficult. Here's the deal. That refusal was pretty messy, wasn't it? It's pretty messy. If you read through the narrative, like one thing I want to be careful of is not to paint a picture of Moses that makes us walk out of here thinking that he's perfect. And because he's perfect, our faith has to be perfect. Because the reality is much like our stories, his story and faith is pretty messy. It's pretty messy. God has a plan for him, right? But the way in which it looks like, when we look at a human perspective at how the world moves, it looks pretty messy. Right? From a human perspective, it's messy, it's painful, and it's not how he would have planned it. From a divine perspective, however, it's perfect. It's purposeful, and it's planned. And it's a good reminder that even though our lives can seem messy and painful, that does not mean it's void of the purposes and the plan and promises of God. Does that make sense? I think we have a tendency to look around and go, my life's pretty messy. That means God is void of it. His purpose is his plan is, is void of this. No, 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 no. From a human perspective, it will always look like that. From a divine perspective, God is in control. And this moment, it's a good reminder. It's a good reminder that God is with us in every moment of the day. And the turning point for Moses, the moment where he made a decision that would change his life forever. It's extremely messy. Look at verse 12 in Exodus 2. He says, he looked, <laughs> he looked this way and that, <laughs> and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. He kills a guy and hides the body. This is the same guy that God commends his faith. And in that moment, the wealth, the servants, the prestige, it's all Gone. Now, what's interesting is that Hebrews calls this moment an act of faith. How is this messy moment an act of faith? Well, go to Acts chapter 7, if you would. Turn in your Bible and go to Acts chapter 7, because Stephen gives his narrative on the story of Moses, and it's pretty fascinating. Acts 7, verse 22. So, Stephen is preaching, and he's going to He's basically, he's preaching the gospel. And so he tells them basically the full story of scripture. And so in Acts 7.22, it says, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. In all the wisdom of the Egyptians, he was mighty in words indeed. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Now, this is the moment that Moses couldn't deny what was in front of him. This man was being oppressed. Who, that was his brother, and he chooses to defend him. And the thought in Moses' mind is, okay, I can't do this anymore. I can't hide behind the prestige, behind the power. I can't be silent any longer. And scripture says that he does this by faith, that he considers who he is, 
who God is, and he makes a decision. Now, we're going to come back to the narrative of Moses in a minute. But through the rest of this text, I want to show you three things. Three things. I know, good old Baptist boy today, I got three points. Um, Three things, three ways in which faith shapes us. And it's three ways in which faith shapes Moses. So faith shapes our identity. Faith shapes our pleasures. And faith shapes our suffering. So faith shapes our identity, our pleasures, and our suffering. And so in the narrative of Moses in Hebrews, connecting it to Exodus, the first thing that we see is that faith shapes Moses' identity. I think in this moment, he's having an identity crisis. He's having an identity crisis. That what we see here is that he has lived in two worlds since birth. He's had one foot in one and one foot in the other. He has in his mind all the teachings from his mom, from his sister, from his family, about God and the covenant. And then he has in his mind all the teachings of the Egyptian world. And the question is, who am I going to identify with? What is going to drive me? And what is going to define me? And he looks out on the suffering of his people, and he has to make a choice about his identity. And those questions, by the way, are the same questions we have to answer every day. Who am I going to identify with? What is going to drive me? And what is going to define who I am? Now, there are two aspects about the identity of God that I think is important here. I think is very important. It's the same aspects that God is going to reveal to Moses in a few moments in Exodus 3. That at the core of God, there are two realities. One is that he is above us. He's above us. And then the second one is that he is with us. The theological terms for those is that God is transcendent and God is imminent. So transcendent, he is bigger. He exists outside of us. He is above us, but then he's also imminent. He is with us. He is involved in our lives and in our circumstances. And this understanding of God is uniquely Christian. No other religion has this. It's uniquely Christian that the all-powerful God who has all authority in the universe, that God exists outside of time, but he's also present with us. He's with us in our day-to-day lives. And because God is transcendent, he is self-defining. We live in a day and age where we want to determine who God is. We want to make him in our own image, but God doesn't work like that. We don't define God. God defines God, that God has revealed himself. So who am I or who, am I or who are you to change who God is? So when, in Exodus 3, when Moses is out in the wilderness, he has rejected the ways of Egypt. And more than that, he has also been rejected by his people at this point, which is important to note. Look at Acts 7, 24. It says, seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. And then 25 says this, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. <laughs> but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So here's where we're at. Moses rejects the prestige and power of Egypt, and then he t- attempts to step into a leadership role with his people, with the Israelites, but they reject him. And, and here's the deal. 
I think Moses, by faith, I really think he thought he was ready to lead. He thought that he was ready to lead the people of Israel. I mean, it says he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hands. And technically, he's not wrong. That's eventually what happened. But he wasn't ready yet. Moses was not ready. God wanted to spend the next 40 years working on him, humbling him, shaping his identity in the wilderness as a shepherd. And listen, God will do the same thing with our faith, that that he will work and act according to his timing. And many times, his timing won't make any sense to us. And this is important because I think sometimes we get discouraged. We, we feel like we're, we, in faith, we are trying to move forward in life, right? But then we look around at our circumstances and we go, what am I doing wrong? You ever feel like that? I'm doing my best, God. I'm moving forward in faith, but this is a mess. What am I doing wrong? I mean, Moses had to have felt like he failed. He had to have felt Moses, he had to have felt like he had disappointed God. He had to have felt like he disappointed his people. But many times those moments are just the providence and patience of God waiting to reveal itself to us. Moses had faith, but he needed humility. He needed, he needed humility. And so just like God will do with us, he meets him in the wilderness. And years later, he sees a burning bush. And he approaches that bush, well, because it's on fire, but it's not burning, right? We would do the same thing. What in the thunder is happening here, right? And God tells Moses, hey, I have heard the cry of my people, and now I am sending you to Pharaoh to declare the freedom of my people. So he says, Moses, go back to the people of Israel and tell them what's about to happen. And Moses says, well, when they ask who sent me, who should I say? And what does God tell him? Look at Exodus 3, chapter 13. Exodus 3, chapter 13, it says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And they said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you to me. Now, if I say I am, or you say I am, there's going to be something that follows it, right? I am a husband. I am a pastor. But God doesn't do that. This is God's name, Yahweh, right? Or when you see the Lord in capital letters, this is God basically saying, I am who I've always been. I am who I will always, he's basically saying, I be who I be, (laughs) right? I love that. God stands on his own and there is nothing that fully defines him. He just is. He isn't made in anyone's image. We were made in his. I mean, like really think about this. I'm about to get really deep here, okay? Have you ever just looked at the stars and thought, there is something that has always been there. Some, someone has always been present in the universe. Like before there was anything, there was one. There was God. I mean, forever, God has been there. There never was a time when he was not. And because he is transcendent, because he is who he is, there is available to us a confidence in his promises that isn't available to us anywhere else. Like, see, God doesn't talk in maybes. You ever notice that? He doesn't talk in maybes. He doesn't say, hey, go to the Israelites and they might listen. He doesn't say, hey, I might deliver you. He says, you will go, they will listen, 
and this will happen. It's certain because he is certain. He is who he is. So we can have confidence in the promises of God because he's transcendent. He's powerful. He's all-knowing. He's outside of time. But here's the deal. He's not only above us, transcendent, more powerful. He's also imminent. He is with us. Look at Exodus 3, 7. It says, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians. So this is extremely important. The God who has all power and all authority, the God who exists outside of time and cannot be defined, here's what scripture just said. He hears our cries, he knows our sufferings, and he has come down to deliver us. And it's as much true for them as it is for us. Emmanuel, right? God with us. And in the moments of doubt and suffering, assurance is found in the confidence of knowing that God is with us. He's imminent. I mean, look at Exodus 3.11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out to Egypt? And how does God respond? He said, but I will be with you. That's his response. But I will be with you. Moses says, who am I? And God's response to that is, it doesn't matter because I'm going to be with you. It doesn't matter. I am there with you. And this is much true for them as it is for us. For us. And both of these realities, transcendence and imminence, are important to understand if our identity of who we, if, if we're going to define, here's who I am. I am Colton. To understand that God is above, he is, exists outside of time, he's more powerful than anything else. But this God has also come down He's with me. The Holy Spirit lives within me. My identity, is, our identity is shaped by that reality. That there is nothing more powerful than him and there is nothing more present within us. Our identity is shaped by that. And here's the deal. If we land too far on the transcendent side of, of, of that side, then you may know God, but you also might be a jerk. Rarely present with the people around you with little empathy and little compassion. On the other side, if he's imminent, but he's not transcendent, he may care about you, but he has no real authority, right? At that point, his promises are as good as my promise. So I may care about you, but I'm limited. So I am going to let you down. And if you land too far on the imminent side, then you won't put much weight in his word at all. There will be no striving for holiness, and you will begin to compromise the words as if they are nothing because his power and authority holds nothing. You'll begin to compromise. And if we're going to live by faith, then we have to understand both of these, that God is above us, he has authority over us, but he's also with us. He knows us. And he loves the, the, the battle in our minds. I think it's the same as Moses had. It's a struggle with identity that God wanted to ensure before Moses did any kind of leading, he wanted to understand that Moses understood who God is, who he is, that he's the one with the prestige and power, not Moses. You can call yourself a prince, but he's the, real, he's the real king. And we're no different, right? All of us, as much as we don't want to admit it, all of us want some kind of prestige and power. We want to be identified as people who are respectable and influential, right? 
And we will begin to tie our identity to things other than Christ because we think, because we think that if I have this prestige and power, if I can be identified as someone who is this influential and this respectable, then I will feel whole, right? Moses had all the power and prestige in the world. And he tried to use, here's what he did. He tried to use that worldly prestige and power to lead the people of Israel. That's what he tried to do. But now in this moment, through a burning bush, God is showing him, no, I am the one with the prestige and power. Your identity is shaped by me. And if we were to go a little, little deeper with this, because I think it's, it's hard for us to grab and admit, yeah, no, that's what I do. It's hard for us to grab and admit that. And we can brush it aside and say, well, that's not me. We tend to look at our lives and say, I am what I do or I am what I own. You ever done that? Or seen other people do that? It's probably easier to identify others than you. But I am what I do or I am what I own. That our self-worth and value is dependent on what we do or what we own. doesn't matter if you're in business, if you're a teacher, if you're a stay-at-home mom, that, that you, we tend to latch our identities to these things. And here's the deal that we have to understand. At some point, all of those things will end. There's an end date on every single one of you, and they are a part of you, but they, not, they are not who you are. That so many of us, we try to find our identity and things that we do, and most of the time, those are good things. But when that identity falls apart, our faith goes with it. That your job or your parenting those things, man, things can go wrong. You can lose a job. You can lose a child. Things can happen in life, and when something happens that threatens that identity, many times we begin to attach our faith to that, and our faith is destroyed along with it. Because our faith was not attached to God in the first place. It was attached to that identity that we had created around something. And the second thing, we all struggle with power. We all struggle with power. And here's how you know if you struggle with power. When you don't feel like you have control over someone or something, does that cause anxiety or anger in you? When you don't feel like you have control in this life, does that cause you anxiety or anger that your identity might be wrapped up in control? And it's devastating when we look at our family, at our country, at our friendships, and realize, oh, I don't have any control at all. That's what happened with Moses. He looked at his people suffering and realized, I thought I had power, I thought I had control, but I don't. And that's terrifying to us. It's terrifying to us. When we realize that we don't have control, we begin to be filled with either anger or anxiety. Because what happens when something happens in your life that is outside of your control? That a friend, a spouse, a, a boss, your child's teacher, the president of the United States does something that you don't like? And does that really drive us in anxiety? Or does it drive us to anger? Because here's the deal, the transcendent and imminent one is in control. So we don't have to be. We don't have to be. Faith shapes that understanding in our minds. That God has not asked us to be in control of the people around us or the ways of the world. He has asked us to trust that he is in control of it all. That our identity isn't tied to what we do, what we own, or what we, we can control. But our identity is tied to the one who does all, owns all, and controls all. So faith shapes our identity. Second, faith shapes our pleasures. Uh, it says choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Let me shorten this one and just do a quick exercise. If you would, I want you to think on one of the most enjoyable 
satisfying experiences of your life. Maybe that's your wedding day. Maybe that is a person that you enjoy being around a specific person. Maybe that's something like running. I don't know why it would be running. You do you, okay? Um, But maybe it's something you do, like playing music or painting, whatever that is. But I want you to think, allow yourself in your mind to go to that place where this is what I enjoy. This is where I feel satisfied. I want you to think on that, okay? Here's the deal. Once you've found that place that I, I pray that we would all understand, and for myself as well, there is, that thing is nothing compared to the enjoyment and pleasure and satisfaction we have in Christ. That wedding day, when you spend time running or playing music, those memories that you have that were the most satisfying and enjoyable, faith, shapes our pleasures to say, he's better. He's better than anything else. There is nothing that compares to him. And what Moses did was courageous. He had the power, the prestige, and he did refuse it all. It takes faith to do that, to look at the insecurities in our lives that we want to be seen a specific way. We want to enjoy specific things. There are sins that are captivating to us, but they're fleeting. And there are things in our lives that, that are, they chain us up. So the question is, will we refuse it? Last thing is faith shapes our sufferings. Faith shapes our sufferings. Verse 26 says, He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward the reward. So Moses serves as a model for endurance through suffering. And to endure through suffering does not mean that we just grit our teeth and wait for something to end, right? It doesn't mean that. The text says that he considered, he reasoned that the reproach of Christ had greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. So I don't grit my teeth and wait for something better. I suffer because I have something better. And here's the deal. You are only as durable as the thing you love most. Does that make sense? You are only as durable as the thing you love most. So if the thing that you love most in this life is fleeting, then that's about as durable as you are. But if you love the thing that is eternal, if you have faith in the thing that is eternal, then you will be as durable as that thing. He is lasting, so your life will be lasting. Consider this. There will be a day when our suffering will end. This is promise. Jesus will return and make all things New And when you think about heaven, the new heaven, the new earth, it's not some otherworldly picture where we are all sitting on clouds in some kind of spirit world. The Bible pictures an earthly heaven, a new earth, not unfamiliar and otherworldly, but familiar. Heaven is not foreign, but it's home, which leads us to the realization that heaven is not boring, but it is infinitely pleasurable. And this is important because I think if we're honest, we're a little worried about heaven. Right? What are we going to do? Just stand around with each other, sing songs for a quadrillion years? The answer Scripture gives is no. That there's so much more to hope for in heaven. It's not an endless choir practice that we're going to. It's a place where we get to experience the fulfillment of all of our desires in a new earth, a new heaven. So envision the hope. A place of full reconciliation with God where we will be with him. Heaven is a place of comprehensive redemption of all of culture, of everything. 
all the good elements of creation, all the good elements of the arts, all of it redeemed by God. So we live in light of the hope of heaven, just like Moses, we look to the reward. We look to eternity with Christ. Think about it this way, those pleasures that you just thought about. The moments in life where you say, I hope this never ends. You ever been in those moments? Right? I hope this never ends. Whether that's wedding day, a moment of worship, a movie, right? Where you think, I just don't want this to end. But inevitably, what happens? It ends. And you go back to a world of suffering and hurt, and your heart is sad because you don't, because you want to experience that feeling that you had. That's why addictions are so real. Because you just want to grab that feeling again. But then you go back to a world where you realize you're hurt and you're suffering. The hearts of heaven will say, I want this to go on forever, and it will. Ever thought about it like that? The hearts of heaven will say, I want this, this is so amazing, I want this to go on forever, and it actually will. <laughs> it's never going to end. That faith shapes our suffering because we see the reward as better. We see the reward and we say, I don't grip my teeth to get through this, but I get through this because I see him. I see him. So faith shapes our identity, faith shapes our pleasures, and faith shapes our suffering. And to close, I would just remind us all of Hebrews 10.35. These Jewish believers, that he tells these Jewish believers, he says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence. Don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised.